The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor in Johannesburg, South Africa, Kobus van Staden. Kobus, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Kobus, it is a fascinating week is what's unfolding right now in the China Global South debt restructuring politics in Sri Lanka, Zambia, and soon in Ghana. The crux of the fight that we're seeing right now is this question as to whether or not the multilateral development banks, that is the World Bank and the IMF, are going to take write-downs or losses on their loans as is requested by the Chinese. Now, this is a showdown that's been playing out for a good six months, but it really came to the fore this week due to a Financial Times article that ran that said that the Zambian finance minister had rejected China's calls for the World Bank and the IMF to take write-downs or losses on their loans. Now, the FT retracted that part of the story, but it sparked a huge discussion on Twitter among a lot of different stakeholders who are finally waking up to this part of the story. Let me set this up for our discussion today. I want to play some sound from some different stakeholders on this issue to show you where we are today in this standoff between China and the Bretton Woods institutions, and it speaks to the larger duel that is underway for what China wants to do to reform parts of the international development finance system. So let's first start with David Malpass, who is the president of the World Bank. Recently, he was questioned by Kathleen Hayes on Bloomberg Television about this issue of China demanding that write-downs be taken by the World Bank and the IMF. I want to run a couple of things that uh, China wants out of this, David, uh, that they uh, that they're delaying, they have requests, they're delaying this restructuring of, of Zambian's debt uh, because they want to have the Southern Africa, the, the nation's local currency debt held by foreigners included in a deal. That's according to the U.S. Treasury fe- fe- uh, official. And they also want the World Bank and the IMF to start taking losses in restructurings. Uh, what do you, how do you respond as the president of the World Bank to these kinds of requests from China? To, to the latter point, as far as World Bank and IMF taking uh, losses, there's not a mechanism to do that. So that, in part, is a delaying tactic or it slows down the process. Uh, that's been discussed uh, actively at the G20 and, and rejected as a, as a direction. So I, I hope they'll move on from that. Well, they have not moved on from this. This has been an issue that has come up now repeatedly to the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing in the context of both Zambia and Sri Lanka. In the Sri Lankan context, this is some sound from Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning, who's been asked repeatedly on this issue about China's stance in Sri Lanka, where she said very much the same thing as what she said on Zambia. Now, in Sri Lanka, she has made it very clear that China is the largest bilateral creditor, but it is one of the smaller creditors overall, and that multilaterals must take losses equally just as the bilaterals. Now, on the Zambian issue, just last week, she said, according to figures released by Zambia's Ministry of Finance and National Planning, this is again, words from Mao Ning, multilateral financial institutions account for 24% of Zambia's foreign debt while predominantly Western commercial lenders account for 46%. Combined, they hold the bulk of Zambia's foreign debt. Okay, now here's the key part, and this is why David Malpass is misled if he thinks the Chinese have moved on. The key to easing Zambia's debt burden, she said, thus lies in the participation of multilateral financial institutions and commercial creditors in the debt relief efforts. Kobus, this has brought the debt restructuring processes to a complete standstill. Zambia has been at it for two years. Sri Lanka is going into, I think, about a year now. Ghana is just about to start, but there is no hope that unless this issue is resolved, that anything is going to change. And at the end of the day, it's going to be Zambians, Sri Lankans, and Ghanaians that suffer. 
Yes, I mean, you know, there's a complicated set of issues involved here, including the fact that on the one hand, the World Bank and the IMF are global institutions and they, you know, kind of they, they play a global development role and particularly, you know, they charge very low interest and they are a lender of last resort. So that is the, you know, kind of some of the reasons for them resisting or for their being a convention that they don't accept losses in, in debt restructuring. However, at the same time, they are also Western-led. You know, so it's a convention that the World Bank president is uh, appointed by the US president and that the IMF head is always European. You know, so, so in that sense, like, you know, what, what, what is at stake is to a certain extent, Western leadership of the development space. And more specifically, it's a kind of a reminder that this kind of bipolar geopolitics and, you know, kind of every single country and every single institution being made to choose sides between the US and China is becoming more and more of a reality in, in international relations. It's interesting you say that because that issue came up just this week in Pretoria where your foreign minister, Naledi Pandor, she hosted her Algerian counterpart, Ramtani Lamamra, and made the best case that I've heard so far about the stakes that you've laid out in terms of how countries are being forced into a space that they don't want to be in in terms of the growing tensions between the United States and China and how it impacts South Africa, African countries, and the global South writ large. With reference to the United States and China, all of us are familiar with the trade uh, disputes that there have been. Uh, one of them would be with respect to Huawei, uh, which is a company uh, that uh, telecoms companies in South Africa do have uh, relations with in terms of both chips production and components. So the uh, view that uh, if there's a conflict with China, everybody else must join in uh, is, is a very worrying one. And uh, of course, China and the United States of America are the two largest economies of the world. And when they're trading together in a stable manner, all of us are able to have our economies stable. But once there's a rift, we are all affected because they're so big. And so it is important that whatever differences they have on trade matters are resolved speedily because it's in the interest of all of us. And I want to get one more perspective before we speak with our guest, this time from out here in Asia, from Kevin Rudd. Before he became Australia's ambassador to China, this was when he was the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. This is a soundbite from a few weeks ago. Kevin is regarded by a lot of people, if you're not familiar with him, as one of the foremost China scholars of our day. And he was very, very blunt in his assessment about the new era that we're all living in today. Whether we use uh, whatever language uh, Washington or Beijing may use, the reality is there is an unfolding strategic competition between them for who will become the dominant power militarily, economically, and technologically, not just in Asia, but eventually globally. And they are the stakes that are being played for, whether we choose to recognize that or not, or whether political spokesmen in Beijing or Washington would be so bold and brassy as to say that explicitly, which they won't be. But if you look beneath the surface and observe the behaviors, that's actually what is happening. So with all of this unfolding in Africa, in Asia, let's now turn our attention to Latin America and the burgeoning geopolitical realities in that region, especially as it relates to the U.S. and China and the competition that's unfolding. There is a fascinating new book that explores this issue in depth, Latin American Foreign Policies in the New World Order, The Active Non-Alignment Option. This is an edited volume of different authors, mostly from the Americas that lay out a new vision for the region's foreign policy. And we are thrilled to have one of the editors, Ambassador Jorge Jaime, now a research professor at the Party School of Global Studies at Boston University and a former Chilean envoy to China, India, and South Africa. Ambassador Jaime, congratulations on the new book and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Eric. A pleasure to be with you as always. It's wonderful to have you. We appreciate your time. Before we kind of dive into the book. I also want to give credit to your co-editors, Carlos Fortin, who is a research fellow emeritus at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex, and also Carlos Ominami, 
a director of the Chile 21 Foundation in Santiago and a former minister of economic affairs in the Chilean government. So I just want to make sure everybody gets their due before we uh, we go forward. Ambassador Jaime, you open the book on a rather grim note in your chapter that was entitled a world order in crisis. I'd like you to reflect on some of the views that you heard in my introduction from David Malpass and from Kevin Rudd and from the others, and then how that relates to the themes that you outline in your chapter and really is the book as a whole. Thank you so much, and thank you for mentioning my uh, co-editor's names. This has been very much a team effort, as well as, you know, not just the editors, but the contributors. We have some very uh, important analysts in the book and some the former foreign ministers in Latin America, former foreign ministers of Brazil, of Mexico, of Argentina, of Chile, Peru. So it is really a team effort bringing together analysts and practitioners to look at the current situation in Latin America and how it deals with a world in, in turmoil. And let me set the stage a little bit. And, uh, you know, the, we came up with this notion originally in 2019 and further developed it in 2020 and in 2021. And what has been fascinating to observe is how the year 2022 was, in many ways, the year of the eruption of uh, non-alignment, the sort of rebirth of non-alignment on the world stage because of the uh, Ukraine war. And how countries in Africa, in Asia, and in Latin America as well, suddenly discovered the notion that a non-alignment, that is, not taking positions with either Beijing or Washington or Moscow, but simply going and looking at your own national interest and acting accordingly, has become very much sort of the order of the day. The position that India has taken, South Africa, Indonesia... Pakistan uh, are all in that same line. One of the things that has struck us, and we have been, uh, you know, having quite a number of uh, book talks on this, is that one of the central tenets that has been set forth by the G7, by Washington, by Brussels, is that the war in Ukraine would underline what they described as the main cleavage in the international system today, one between democracy and autocracy, between democracy and authoritarianism. Well, as it happens, that doesn't rhyme with the facts. Some of the biggest and most significant democracies in the world, like India, like South Africa, like Indonesia, like Brazil, like Mexico, uh, have stayed studiously neutral in the war. They have condemned the invasion of Ukraine, but have refused to take sides in the actual war. So it seems to me that tells us that non-alignment and the particular variant that we identify active non-alignment is very much alive and well. So can you expand a little bit on what you mean by active non-alignment? How does that differ from non-alignment itself? Kind of what does the active part imply? What we are implying by that is that precisely because the world is in such turmoil right now, and it is so dangerous, and as a result of that, Latin America has faced, according to the economic wish for Latin America and the Caribbean, its biggest crisis in 120 years. Latin America had a negative growth of 6.6% in 2020, the worst economic performance of any region in the world. Now, what we are saying is that this troublesome international environment requires an especially active foreign policy, one that is constantly looking for opportunities to position our countries in the right situation and manage this very complex situation. Let me give you an example. President Lula, president of Brazil, was this past weekend in Washington. They agreed on many things with President Biden on the need to fight climate change, on the need to defend democratic institutions, on the need to protect the Amazon, and so on and so forth. But they differed on one thing. And President Lula has said that he wants to actively mediate in the war in Ukraine and form some sort of international group, particularly the BRICS, perhaps others, that can mediate and bring that war to an end. Now, that is a very different position from the one of Washington or of Brussels uh, that want to have the war go on and, you know, eventually weaken Russia permanently, as somebody has said. Uh, well, that it seems to be a sort of example of what active non-alignment is all about. 
Well, just as many international relations scholars say that it's not appropriate to define what the United States and China are in today as some kind of Cold War, because the parallels to the actual Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviets just kind of break down when you look at the interdependence between the United States and China today. There is something going on, as Kevin Rudd pointed out, but calling it a Cold War is not appropriate. And I I just wonder if the same thing applies to this use of the non-aligned reference as well, because it brings back memories of the Bandung non-alignment movement during the Cold War itself and this creation of what was then called the Third World. And in many ways, the Ukraine war is a highly exceptional event. It's easy to take a very strong view on that in many respects, because for many countries, it's it's just this isn't our fight. And I see that playing out here in Vietnam, and it's played out in South America as well, where it gets more complicated. And I'd like to get your take on how active non-alignment plays out in issues that are not as stark or extreme as war. So issues on telecommunications, on trade, on ideological alignment. This is where people like Lula get into difficult circumstances with the United States or President Fernandez in Argentina as well, who's very much aligning himself and Argentina with China and the BRICS and the new development bank priorities and whatnot. And so I'm just wondering how how does that shape out in these maybe third or fourth tier issues and not war? Sure, sure. Well, but first, let me take issue, if I may, with your introduction to your statement. And, you know, we published an article in Foreign Affairs Latin America with my colleagues, uh, Fortino Minami, in, in 2020 in which we uh, made the case for active alignment and also expressed that we were getting into what we call the second Cold War. This was three years ago. Uh, we got a lot of flack, and uh, a number of colleagues said exactly what you're saying. Uh, well, this is not uh, another Cold War because the situation is very different. Moreover, they said, this is basically a trade war and a technological war. It does not have ideological or military dimension. Well, that's not true now that we're shooting balloons out of the sky with F-22s. Well, that's the whole point. So, you know, three years later, it turns out that, well, the G7 is saying this is democracy versus authoritarianism, which is about as ideological as it can get. And they're shooting down balloons. So, yes, there are differences between the first and the second Cold Wars. And the ones that you identify, first of all, the size of the Chinese economy, which is huge, much, much bigger than the Soviet economy ever was, and two, the interdependence that exists between the U.S. and China. I take it this past year they had a record trade of $690 billion, which is a lot and indicates the uh, connection that exists between those two countries. But that doesn't mean that uh, the challenges that the countries in the global south are facing are not in some ways comparable to the pressures that they felt back in the 50s and 60s. Now, there's an important difference here, and we see it in Latin America quite clearly. Uh, What you did have in Latin America in the 50s and 60s and 70s was that there were veto players in our various countries, particularly the military and business. They were strongly opposed to the Soviet Union and therefore made it very difficult for governments to enhance and work on links with Moscow. Now, Today, the incentives for both the military and uh, business in Latin American countries are very different. Why should they oppose strong links with China, which is much to offer? And therefore, the situation is quite different. And in fact, in South, for South America as a whole, not Latin America, but for South America, uh, China today is the number one trading partner. That leads to a very different equation. And what I find fascinating is that what we had in, in 2022, and foreign policy summing up the magazine, foreign policy summing up the year 22, 2022 in Latin America, described it as the year of non-alignment. And what happened was that Latin America jointly with countries in Africa and in Asia sort of uh, rediscovered uh, what non-alignment is all about, not always calling it that way, but acting in that fashion. I was wondering where you see non-alignment going. So, you know, kind of in, in discussion so far, you've you've mentioned that, you know, like this being countries led by their own national interests. So 
is is that a kind of upper level that that we that we can see in or like in, in non-alignment or is there some kind of supranational kind of level as we had in the previous non-aligned movement where it, it moved beyond individual countries towards being a movement. So I was wondering particularly around issues, say, for example, like collective issues like climate change. Is non is active non-alignment some kind of bridge towards some form of greater cooperation or are we looking at uh, you know kind of a kind of an atomized international scene where each country is, doesn't think beyond its own borders? I think that's a great question and my answer to this is the following. In the case of Latin America, what we argue is that for active non-alignment to work, to be fully deployed, to be fully effective. And I was encouraged by the recent summit meeting of CELAC, the Latin American Caribbean uh, grouping that met on 24 January in Buenos Aires. And it hadn't met for quite a while. And that, it seemed to me, was an important signal with you know a number of leaders that are now in power and are, in fact, committed to regional cooperation because... You know, I, until recently, we had a number, including President Bolsonaro of Brazil, who not only did not believe in regional cooperation, but in fact left CELAC. You know, amazingly as it may sound, Brazil is the biggest Latin American country. One of the first measures he took was to have Brazil leave CELAC. Now, we are now in a different environment with President Lula in Brazil, President Petro in Colombia, uh, President Fernandez in Argentina, President Boric in Chile, and so on, that are in fact committed to regional cooperation. So, at the regional level, uh, my first statement in response to your question is that we believe regional cooperation and coordination is an important uh, step forward. We're already seeing some signs in that regard. Now, in the future, we certainly hope that there might be greater uh, coordination between countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Brazil played a very important role in uh, the Global South during uh, Lula's presidency. Uh, with the BRICS, with uh, the India-Brazil-South Africa initiative, and we are sure that we'll see a lot more of that. Celso Amorim, who was the foreign minister of Lula, has a chapter in our book called Brazil in the Global South, in which he elaborates uh, precisely on that. So in that sense, I'm quite hopeful. I am particularly upbeat, I must say, about the BRICS. I think uh, I followed, the, I've been ambassador to three of the five BRICS countries, and I think with President Lula in Brazil, we will see quite an upsurge of BRICS activity. As you know, BRICS is thinking about expanding. Argentina has formally uh, requested to join. Uh, Indonesia apparently is in line as well. And if that happens, well, we would be in a whole new world game. I guess this is where this non-aligned question comes in again. And I do want to move on from non-aligned because there's so many other themes and topics in your book. But... If you're sitting in Washington as you are, people don't look at the BRICS as being non-aligned. I'm, I'm in Boston. Oh, you're in Boston now. In Boston. Fair enough. But even in Boston, okay, people will, <laughs> will do not see joining the BRICS as being part of a non-aligned movement. They see that as aligning fully into a China-initiated organization that also includes Russia and that may have Iran involved in it as well. So you can see how maybe the other side of this equation here, the Americans may look at this with a certain degree of skepticism, and it doesn't feel like these countries are necessarily trying to avoid taking sides. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, there's a firm saying, uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. And uh, there's always some truth to what you are saying. But what I find remarkable is that, you know, the, the sort of narrative, the war in, in Ukraine has shown the tremendous unity of NATO and of the G7, all of which is true and admirable in many ways. At the same time, the truth is that the overwhelming majority of people around the world, something like 80%, are in countries that, well, are not taking sides in Ukraine and are taking a different look at what is happening there. So I see this as really critical moment, a turning point in which uh, countries in the global south, in Africa, Asia, in Latin America, are looking at the world and what is happening uh, with a different and very skeptical eye. There's this whole notion about, you know, that the rules-based order that would somehow be in danger because of what has been happening in Ukraine. Well, you know, for a long while, countries in the global south have been very skeptical of this order. They don't think this order has delivered for them. They don't think that uh, the existing order was able to react in any coordinated and systematic or effective fashion 
two challenges like uh, the global pandemic, which was, you know, quite a fiasco in so many ways, uh, that it's not doing anything serious about uh, climate change that will be the next big challenge we will face. With that, you were talking earlier about uh, the financial difficulties of a number of countries in Africa and Asia and the difficulties of the established financial system to respond to that. So there's a lot of skepticism of how this order has been working. And, you know, I see many governments and many leaders looking for something else, for something new. And what we are saying is that uh, active alignment uh, provides uh, such a path. Kobus, Ambassador Heine makes a point that you have raised on a number of occasions, and you and I, in fact, just today, were talking about this with regards to the IMF, that if the United States is going to go out to the developing world and to global South countries to try and rally support for the World Bank and the IMF, out here in Asia, people have very long memories of the structural adjustment programs that the IMF imposed in the 1997 financial crisis. And there's this famous picture of the IMF director, I think, standing over, I think it was either Thailand or South Korea, in this very kind of masterful colonial way. And the reservoir of resentment towards the IMF and the World Bank runs very, very deep in many of these countries for what happened over the past 20, 30 years. And I think this goes to your point that you've made and that Ambassador Heine made, that the rules-based order has benefited people at the top, but not necessarily people at the bottom of the pyramid. What's your thought on that, Kobus? Well, yeah, I think that that is clear. The bigger question, though, is what options these countries have, you know, because as all of these issues around debt restructuring that you raised, you know, in the intro, you know, shows, you know, all of all of those, you know, take place against the background of very, very limited choices from, you know, developing regions like Africa in terms of, of financing, particularly for large scale infrastructure. You know, if you want to build a rail network, you have very few options. And those options tend to be either kind of financial deals with China, financial deals with, with Western-led institutions, or both. So that then also relates, you know, to other economic activity as well. So one of the differences between the old Cold War and the new Cold War is that, is that economies, you know, the, particularly the Chinese and U.S. economies are so intertwined. And so, you know, even a lot of kind of U.S. experts who are very pro-decoupling admit that fully decoupling the kind of supply chains that, that we see in the world now is, is a real challenge. So Ambassador Haider, I actually wanted to, you know, segue from that into asking you how you see these issues playing out in the context of non-alignment. Is there an active non-aligned development model that where there's some kind of way of moving forward without these kind of like de facto alliances where whether one is ideologically aligned with the US or China or not, one ends up being financially financially, you know, on the hook to them anyway. And also in relation to trade, the previous non-aligned movement, it was also happening in an era of, of much less globalization where there was still, a, you know, a, a strong logic of, of, of mechanisms like import substitution or, you know, kind of like, you know, essentially other ways of like ideas of kind of closing off economies in order to then grow industrialization. So but like that, those, many of those ideas are gone now. So I was wondering, like, kind of in terms of trade and in terms of development, like what does active non-alignment actually look like on the financial level? Well, it's good that you bring this up. Uh, you say that those ideas uh, in the, you know, of the third world uh, in terms of input substitution, in terms of uh, protectionism, uh, and so on and so forth, the high tariff barriers and so on, uh, have gone away. Well, uh, they may have gone away in some parts of the world, but they have come back elsewhere. What we see today, and I find this most fascinating, is that they have come back in the United States, and they have come back in Europe and in the UK. The United States used to talk about free trade. Now, believe it or not, they talk about fair trade. Now, that used to be the rallying cry of countries in the global south. And so we are living, in a way, in a world turned upside down. The United States today is against free trade agreements. It is not signing any free trade agreements. So here you have this extraordinary paradox. The United States is talking about decoupling. Now, that is exactly what countries in the third world used to talk about in the 60s and 70s. I studied at university in Chile in the 1960s where dependency theory came up. You know, and a key element of some variant of dependency theory was that you had to decouple from the world economy so that you could actually develop because the North was exploiting you. Now we have countries in the North 
saying that they must decouple from China because otherwise they would lose out in the economic competition. Now, does that sound like conventional classical economics to you? It doesn't sound like that to me. So we have this extraordinary paradox in which it is countries in our part of the world, in Latin America, in Africa, and Asia, that want free trade. And it is the developed countries, those in the G7, that are raising barriers and do not want free trade. In South America, we now have two countries, Ecuador and Uruguay, that are keen on signing free trade agreements with the United States. The United States has rebuffed them. So they have gone to China. And Ecuador has signed a free trade agreement with China, and Uruguay is exploring that possibility. Now, isn't that extraordinary? So to go back to your question, what active non-alignment is all about is for looking for more trade, for free trade, for greater flow of uh, international capital and investment. We want more uh, interactions with the world, not less. And it is the northern countries that are uh, closing up. Now, on that one uh, final comment on this question, it is important also to keep in mind this. The World Bank in 2015 released a document talking about the what it calls the wealth shift that we are seeing from the North Atlantic to the Asia-Pacific. Today, there are more billionaires in Beijing than there are in New York City. So, trade flows have shifted, whereas in the 70s and 80s, no more than, say, 20% of trade flows had to do with the Global South. Nowadays, it's probably around 40 or 50%. There's much more trade within the Global South uh, than there was in the past. And we're seeing remarkable things like, for example, in 2021, China invested more in Latin America than it did in the United States, and about the same as it did in Europe. Why? Because the United States and Europe are closing themselves off to Chinese investment. Now, capital will always look for places to go. Uh, China is a very high savings rate. So I think we're going to see a lot more Chinese investment in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia in years to come. So one of the other concepts that was introduced in the book is this notion of equidistance diplomacy. And it was written by Juan Gabriel Toclatin, who is the vice rector at the University of Torquato di Tela in Buenos Aires. Now, this idea of equidistance diplomacy is to maintain an equal amount of space from both Beijing and Washington. Can you expand on that concept? Yes, it is very much a sister concept to that of active uh, non-alignment. And it is something which Dr. Tokadrian has been working uh, for some time. The basic notion here is that countries in uh, Latin America should not choose sides, should not let themselves pressured by either Beijing or Washington to ally themselves a priori and in total with uh, their whole uh, positions. And the idea is to have a sort of uh, intermediate position between the two uh, superpowers. Now, here there are some you know, differences with uh, the notion of active non-alignment. Active non-alignment, it's important to understand, is not about neutrality. Neutrality is, say, what Switzerland did. Switzerland was not in the European Union, wasn't even in the UN until a few years ago. It wanted to stay totally away from any international conflict and international difference. Active non-alignment is not about that. Active non-alignment will side with a certain country on certain issues. For example, it is more likely that, obviously, that it will side with the United States on issues related to democracy and human rights. It is more likely it will side with China, say, on issues of international trade or digital connectivity. So, active non-alignment in that sense is more flexible than neutrality, more flexible than equidistant diplomacy. And I would underscore, again, the issue of active, the qualifier active, why? Because what is easy is to say, well, I will do whatever Washington tells me or whatever Beijing tells me. What is much more challenging, and I spent 12 years in the Chilean foreign ministry, what is much more challenging is to evaluate each issue on its merits and decide on the basis of that what is the best way forward and what decision reflects best uh, the national interest. These are very complex issues that require you know, sophisticated and very deft policymakers that will able to move the country forward in the right direction. 
Just following up on that, do you have faith that those policymakers and that kind of level of not only national kind of interest, but regional and, uh, and kind of group Global South interests will be you know, advanced by these leaders. I mean, you know, kind of, obviously, you know, the many Global South countries have many different leaders, but, you know, like, I was thinking, you know, the, like, in, in, as you were speaking about, about South Africa's leadership, which always speaks, like, talks a very good game, but, you know, when it comes to implementation, there's a lot of corruption issues, there's a lot of other issues, there's a lot of all kinds of problems. So, how do you foresee those kind of, um, you know, challenges being overcome? Sure. Now, obviously, there are, you know, significant uh, bureaucratic and policymaking and, you know, leadership challenges that, you know, can stand in the way of any uh, effective application of these principles. But what I would like to say is the following. The more countries can work together, the more they can coordinate. We're not talking about, you know, some sort of regional government, but we're talking about a minimal level of coordination and a minimal level of cooperation, the easier it will become. I mean, let me give you an example. The recent visit by the Chancellor of Germany, Mr. Olaf Scholz, in the case of Chile, was the first visit by a Chancellor of Germany in 10 years, was basically about convincing the countries he visited to send arms and weapons to Ukraine. Now, it is understood that the common position of many of these countries is that of active non-alignment. Well, you know, that wouldn't even have happened because it would start from the premise that it would be a losing proposition. So what I'm trying to say is that the more this percolates as a collective endeavor, the easier it becomes in the sense that, well, we all know where we stand and therefore decision-making becomes more predictable and easier and you wouldn't face these extraordinary situation in which Latin American countries are asked to send, you know, all kinds of weapons to Ukraine. What does that have to, it's a European war, that Europe is trying to make into a global war, bringing Latin American countries in that have, you know, no dog in that fight. Yeah, I mean, just picking up on Kobus's point here in terms of the prognosis of how these policies and these ideas may be implemented, you wrote that there's an urgency to all of this and that there's an urgency to reevaluate the way in which Latin America relates to the international environment. Let's just get some closing thoughts from you in terms of whether countries as they are configured today, I mean, you talked about regional integration, and but let's be honest now, Mercosur is not doing so well these days, the South American trade group. So it's not all sunshine and roses right now in terms of how South American countries are interacting with one another. And in many ways, that plays to the advantages of the great powers. So I guess in context of everything we've talked about, what is your prognosis about whether or not leaders will be able to take some of your ideas and implement them into action? Well, let me say um, the following. What we have right now is, on the one hand, a geopoliticization of international relations. Uh, globalization has come under increased criticism, and more and more countries are being asked to make what would have been commercial and investment decisions on you know, ideological grounds and geopolitical grounds. In that context, we argue very strongly that the last thing Latin America needs is to start making economic decisions on ideological grounds. For Latin America, the great imperative is development, as it is for Africa, as it is for Asia. That is the way forward. We must concentrate our efforts on the deadline. Number two, what we have seen in the course of the past year is that a number of leaders have been elected, I mentioned this before, like Lula, like Petro, like Boric and so on, uh, that have a different view of what Latin American integration and cooperation is all about. Very different from their predecessors that were very skeptical and if not downright critical of Latin American integration. In that sense, the current uh, political situation in the region opens an interesting possibility. It seemed to me that uh, President Lula has shown that kind of leadership in the past. Uh, he was one of the drivers behind the creation of UNASUR. I fully agree with you that Mercosur is a serious trouble. But what is now on the agenda is reviving UNASUR, which brings together all countries in uh, South America as a political cooperation instrument, as a political cooperation tool. It seems to me, if that happens, South America would be in a very different uh, situation and would be able to um, exercise 
uh, the sort of influence and have the sort of role it merits in international affairs and uh, would be able to uh, get out of the current crisis in which it finds itself. The book is Latin American Foreign Policies in the New World Order, the Active Non-Alignment Option. I've read it, and I cannot recommend it enough. It is absolutely essential reading. And what's best about it is that there are so many diverse voices that are featured in the book and that are absolutely worthwhile reading, especially such a strong vision for how South America navigates itself in this new world that we're living in, this very contentious world that we're living in. And we are just so thrilled that Ambassador Jorge Jaime was able to join us. He's one of the editors on the book. Ambassador Jaime, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing some of the insights from you, your editors, and your co-authors in the book. Uh, We're going to put links to the book. It's available on Amazon. And believe it or not, Cobus, it's actually affordable, which is wonderful. So if you want the ebook, it's only $26, and it is worthwhile getting because, again, we have not heard the point of view and that perspective from South America, Central America, and the Caribbean on the U.S.-China divide, and this is a great way to do it. Ambassador Jaime, you are very active on Twitter, and if people want to follow you there, where can they find you? They can find me at Jorge Jaime L. Wonderful. We'll put a link to that along with the book and also some of your previous writings on these issues. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobus, for the opportunity. Have a great day. Kobus, every time we speak with Ambassador Jaime, it's always so refreshing to hear such a confident voice for this region and these ideas and from so many different people pushing the continent forward, the South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. And as Ambassador Jaime was speaking, I was thinking to myself that in the context of the U.S.-China duel, we have not heard, in my view, maybe you can correct me on this, but I haven't heard this articulation of a vision of how to navigate the complexities of this dynamic in this new world order that we're in, or this new era that we're in, in an African context. Have you seen it? Not as well articulated or as, as kind of, you know, as, as worked out as seen here. I think at the moment there's a lot of anti-Westernism and then a lot of anti-Chinaism, but not necessarily anti-both of them. I think probably the issue is more that, you know, Pan-Africanism itself obviously has a very like long and storied intellectual history. And there is kind of neo-Pan-Africanists out there. But I think for a lot of Pan-Africanism still sounds like the past, you know, and I'm sure it'll get rethought and re- revived and so on, but it will also probably get revived in probably another version of active non-alignment, you know, in in terms of kind of global South solidarity, like South-South cooperation. But I think so far, not so much. It's interesting because that dynamic wouldn't work out here in Asia for the most part, because while there is growing economic integration among the countries in Asia, there is growing security fragmentation. And you're just seeing the strains and the stresses. Again, there's a buildup of military that's going on right now. The presence of the United States, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, China, all in the South China Sea, then obviously the India-China border. And so in many ways, what Ambassador Jaime and his colleagues have done is rather unique. And it could serve as a model for what other countries and regions should do, because if you can't figure out your way in this world where we are now, you're going to get lost, you're going to get crushed. And we are literally seeing this unfold in front of our eyes. What's happening in Zambia and Sri Lanka right now is exactly that, that these countries are collateral damage in the bigger fight. And let's be very clear here, while a lot of focus is being placed on China's role in all of this, you and I have said this a number of times, that the United States and the United Kingdom have an enormous amount of leverage in what they can do with private creditors, which they have not exercised. They have tremendous influence in what they can do with the IMF and the World Bank. I have not seen any momentum on that. They also help to set the agenda at meetings like the G20. And for the past three years, since the beginning of the pandemic, number one, we have not seen one successful debt restructuring. And number two, we have not seen the major powers, the United States and Europe predominantly, to prioritize debt at G20 meetings. So there's a lot of blame to go around here. And certainly China has its fair share. Absolutely. There's no doubt that they're playing geopolitics here at the expense of Zambian taxpayers. No doubt. But they are not alone in this mud. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that has also been one of the one of the kind of revealing things about Ukraine crisis. You know, it's like it's just, you know, what is possible in one context is not possible in other contexts. You know, so you occasionally, and I mean, obviously, you know, Western allies, kind of the NATO grouping has been hasn't necessarily been unified on all aspects of Ukraine, and there's a lot of there's a lot of different kind of even within within the kind of like that alliance, there's a lot of of divergent things and kind of pulling in different directions with Ukraine you kind of get this, this glimpse of like oh this is what it looks like when Europe or the America or America actually cares about something you know um, and then you know in the process you realize oh they actually they don't care about development or they don't care about kind of debt restructuring or not at the same level or not in you know not in the same non-academic kind of way you know and that I think is you know is what we've been dreaming about in, into the void you know kind of is this kind of thing of just of kind of faux concern you know kind of keeping you know calling China out and I mean China's problematic in many many ways but then not mentioning stakeholders like private creditors for example where they have a direct kind of leverage over which makes you think that oh this isn't really about debt this is again about geopolitics you know so that i think is part of the kind of disillusionment that one feels in the global south and i think that it manifests in terms of when they're suddenly called on to for example send troops or weapons or contributions to ukraine why there's such a lukewarm reaction because that feeling is like oh okay so now it's important now our contributions are important now you know we we should all pull together but when you know sri lanka is melting down then that's not a problem you know Two other very quick points before we go that I want to bring up from what's happened this week. Last week, actually, uh, Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen went to Beijing, and he went with a very big shopping list in his pocket. And it was very interesting to watch that visit unfold. And I had a lot of expectations on that particular visit, in part because China and Cambodia are very much strategically aligned. Chinese influence in Cambodia is tremendous. The Chinese are reportedly revamping or building a very small Navy installation there of some kind, a base. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's some kind of outpost. So these are about as good of friends as you're going to get. China owns about 40 percent of Cambodia's $10 billion debt. And Prime Minister Hun Sen went with a vision to get quite a bit of money out of Beijing to upgrade two of the country's railways into high-speed rail. And he came back with a $44 million grant. And Kobus, I thought that was so interesting because if anyone was going to get a large-scale infrastructure loan from China, it was going to be a country in Southeast Asia that is strategically important. And that didn't happen. So $44 million really is an indication of where we are in the current environment for China and overseas development finance. The days of the big billion-dollar railways being financed by China are now over. It's also very interesting that it's a grant, not a loan. You know, I've, I've been reading a lot about debt, the restructuring and some of the internal dynamics about it restructuring over the last few days. And one of the things that, that some of the more, some of the newer reporting is pointing out is the huge role that official, that led, like different issues within officialdom within China plays in, in the advancing of loans and then making how difficult it is to actually write off loans. One of the problems with accepting losses in debt renegotiation is that in the first place, it's, you know, like all of these kind of write-offs have to be cleared much higher up and then also each time a loan has to be written off a loan essentially fails that the officials involved their careers are tainted so 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 there is all of this institutional and personnel level kind of resistance against writing off loans that then kind of manifest higher up you know in terms of china's like quote unquote like kind of foot dragging and all of all of the other complications that we that we're seeing you know behind the scenes in relation to the, to these issues so so it is interesting for me that they managed to just that they decided to just kind of give a grant and i was wondering if one of the reasons behind it is ah, just just avoid loans you know at all costs you know and, and i was also wondering in relation to that whether part with bad situations like the standard gauge railway in kenya for example essentially burnt the entire global south you know that the lesson that china learned there is that these big infrastructure loans are bad news no matter and rather than oh we should manage them better well, they don't have to look as far as Kenya for that example, because there's an equally expensive standard gauge railway in Laos, $6 billion railway there. Again, the question is whether or not Laos can repay that debt. A lot of skeptics say they can't. So here in Southeast Asia, those issues are front and center, don't have to go all the way to Kenya. The other thing going on this week 
that is worth keeping an eye on is a three-day visit by Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi, who met with Chinese President Xi Jinping on Tuesday. Uh, She apparently is trying to nudge Iran back into the Iran nuclear talks known as the JCPOA. And again, in many ways, we've heard over and over again from China-Iran analysts that says that China's main priority in Iran is to get Iran to behave and not complicate its relationships with more important countries in the Persian Gulf, namely Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Qatar, who, by the way, also is on deck to sign another massive natural gas deal. So energy deals coming out of the Gulf are very important. And this relationship with Iran, though a big concern in places like Washington, is generally speaking of secondary importance to the Chinese in the Gulf. And uh, But nonetheless, it's interesting to see this presidential visit, so I encourage everybody to keep an eye on that. So we've covered a lot of ground today, from debt to Iran to Latin America to non-aligned movements. So it was a lot to kind of digest. So I hope you're able to stay with us. Of course, this is what we do every day. In the China Global South daily brief that goes out to thousands of diplomats, of business leaders, Ambassador Heine receives it every morning at 6 a.m. East Coast time. So if you'd like to join our growing community of readers around the world who follow what the Chinese are doing in the Global South, uh, go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. You can try it out for 30 days for free. Also, if any questions whatsoever, just send me an email Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com, or you can reach Cobus at Cobus, C-O-B-U-S at ChinaAfricaProject.com. One of these days, Cobus, I got to change our email domain name to China Global South. I, I just haven't been able to get around to that. But you can still find us on Twitter and all the other places. So if you want to reach us, we're super easy to reach. But we'd love to hear from you, what you think, any feedback you have, and any questions about our subscription service. Your subscription also supports the nine staff that we have in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East who are producing independent, nonpartisan journalism on China. So not only are you getting good information, but you're supporting a very worthwhile cause in independent journalism. So we appreciate that, and thank you so much for all the support you give us, and especially to our Patreon supporters. Really, you're doing God's work, so thank you so much. So, Cobus Knight will be back again next week with another edition of the China Global South podcast. For Cobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Holander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.